I'm Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Explorers. It's a Sunday morning in October in America. People across the country are filing into churches, ready to worship their deity of choice. Others are slipping into warrior one pose during an early morning yoga class. But if you happen to be in Salem, Massachusetts, like I am, you can do both at the same time. Kind of. I'm deep inside the international headquarters of the Satanic Temple in a converted 18th century funeral parlor. I'm with a small group in a dark room lined with blue velvet wallpaper, lit only by a handful of candles on an old mantel place. Here, Downward Facing Dog is paired with droning metal, courtesy of Liana and Jen, who run Dayani Yoga. We're an alternative yoga company based out of Long Island, New York. We just really appreciate the honest aspects that we're able to really tap into when, when we hold Dayani classes because we don't really hold back from anything. Like, oh, you get pissed off too and you're a yoga teacher and you're, you're, you're into horror movies and you drink beer and, you know, we don't have to pretend we don't do these things. So we figured why not create a community that was welcoming. We both really love Salem a lot, so we felt like the Satanic Temple was the perfect fit. And the Dayani yoga class here, in this building, is the ideal place to begin a day in what many call the most haunted town in the United States. The Satanic Temple, like many things in Salem, looks pretty normal, until you notice the details. The old Victorian-style home has a giant pentagram flag on the side, a little devil weather vane on its jet black roof. It also houses one of the most interesting art collections in New England. In this room, so we've got Degas, Salvador Dali's, Man Ray, a lot of original artwork. The founders of TST are great, great art lovers, and so this is largely their personal collection. This is Nathan, Satanic Temple member and curator of the gallery. This gallery, I mean, you can literally sit on Satan's lap. We can sit in his lap? You can sit in his lap. And sit in Satan's lap I did. The temple's crown jewel, an eight and a half foot tall bronze Baphomet statue, features two children gazing lovingly at the half goat, half human seated on a throne behind an enormous pentagram. The statue became national news back in the early 2010s because of course it did. Who would build a statue to Satan? Well, turns out a group of atheists wants to do exactly that. The TSD and its supporters commissioned the Baphomet from artist Mark Porter, and unsuccessfully attempted to put it in the state houses of Oklahoma and then Arkansas. Now it's here, open to the public, as was always intended. Most of the people who come here are not associated with the temple, are not even associated kind of with darker imagery. So I think this place kind of becomes that pilgrimage spot. Again, this the devil is in Salem still, and I want to go see him. But the Satanic Temple, both the literal headquarters in Salem and the organization at large, isn't actually about worshiping Satan. They're a group focused on human rights and the separation of religion and government. So, I mean, TST is by and large, I mean, it is a secular humanist organization, so we're not dealing in the supernatural. However, I feel like this building really does contain, um, it's just dripping through the walls. Whatever is dripping through the walls hopefully isn't coming from the room upstairs, which you can rent out for the night and do whatever in. But the building and the gallery and the people there 
are one of the more notable points of interest in America's spookiest town. It is Halloween 24-7. People come in and they bring, you know, their, their wide-brimmed black hats and all their black clothing, kind of their Salem outfit for the day to experience what it might be like to be a witch or a Satan worshiper or any of these types of things. And you can do it here. There's a collective energy that you can feel. It's, it's here even not in October, even in the dead seasons, which is rarely ever. You can feel a tangible energy in the air of like, we're all fucking weird. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry yeah. for the, no. the F-bomb. Made infamous by the Salem witch trials of the 1600s. I saw Bridget Bishop with the devil. I saw Bridget with the devil. Made pop culture famous by movies like Hocus Pocus. But I shall be a spring forever once I suck the life out of all the children in Salem. Salem, Massachusetts is Halloween town, the de facto tourist destination for anyone invested in spooky season. I think it is the, the allure of darkness. It's the allure of the unknown. But I think people are able to see it as, um, you know, and not to use religious terms, but in a Mecca sort of a way. Like, let's come to Salem and see what Ground Zero look like. Where else can you walk down the street and see uh, Pennywise the Clown and then also SpongeBob just like dancing in the, I in the street? I SpongeBob actually, <laughs> so I don't want to even think about that. Thanks. It's a normal, small-ish city in northeastern Massachusetts. There's a weed dispensary, at least four Chinese takeout restaurants, and the Peabody Essex Art Museum. It was one of the most significant seaports in colonial America. The writer Nathaniel Hawthorne was born here. You can even visit his childhood home and the real house of the Seven Gables. But in downtown Salem, alongside the Dunkins and accounting firms, you'll find more than a dozen witch shops, gaggles of psychics and palm readers, haunted houses, monster museums, and more Harry Potter-themed attractions than Universal Studios, with a lot more copyright infringement. That was not funny. Throw a stone down Essex Street, and you're bound to hit a couple in matching Beetlejuice shirts celebrating their anniversary, or teenagers with vampire fangs and purple eyeliner, or, you know, a busker in a dress covered with leaves and wearing a papier-mâché pumpkin over his head. Basically, it's supposed to be the spirit of autumn itself, and the name is Cornucopius. <laughs> uh, Cornucopius, uh, yes. do you live yes. in Salem? No, my dear, I live in the autumn woods. No, I live uh, about 20 minutes north. <laughs> Cornucopius poses for photos alongside a Jack Skellington on stilts and someone dressed like Bette Midler from Hocus Pocus. But this was a much different scene one year ago. Last year, it was very, very slim pickings with the uh, tourists. Yeah, thanks to the pandemic, but the crowds were very limited compared to last, compared to today. Today and yesterday, actually, just, just two days. Just two days, and it's like double the amount of crowds that I saw last year, so it's fantastic. I mean, people want someplace to go for Halloween, and they want someplace that celebrates it as well as Salem does. About half a million people come to Salem in any given October. There's a parade, public screenings of scary movies, cemetery tours. But last year, it got attention for a different reason. Every October, Salem gets super spooky. But this year, on the long weekend before Halloween, it was frightening for a different reason. Tourists packed shoulder to shoulder. Salem canceled its annual parade and nearly a dozen other big events because of the pandemic and revenue is expected to be way down. You remember the mayor from Jaws who kept the beaches open on the 4th of July? Well, Salem's mayor, Kim Driscoll, basically did the opposite of that. 
We have been communicating again since September. This is not the year to come to Salem. This is not the year to visit. That will continue. As was announced in August, all Halloween activities have been canceled this year. There will be no music stages, no street performers, no beer gardens, no DJs, and no fireworks, and we hope no crowds. Here was a small-town mayor with a town dependent on the tourism of spooky season who basically told people not to come, to wait until next year. That was newsworthy. She was one of the first people in her position to take a stand like this, and it got national news coverage. Which, to be honest, kind of led to a big fuck-up on Thrillist part. Hey, I'm Tony Maravic, and I'm the managing editor at Thrillist. But around this time last year, I was actually running Thrillist's news team. So we ran a story with the headline, Salem, Massachusetts, colon, please don't come here for Halloween this year. (laughs) We started getting these comments on Facebook and people were like, "Um, wait a minute, you guys just posted two hours ago that, you know, you should come to Salem. So clearly there were some wires crossed at Thrillist. So we posted a video of all the cool things you can do in Salem if you were hypothetically going to visit. And then our news team wrote about the new development of the mayor telling people to stay away. Yikes. One commenter said, do you guys not touch base with each other before posting articles? Yeah. And it was, you know, it was no one's fault, really. We can laugh about it now. Oh, of course. (laughs) Yeah. I'd happily laugh with you right now if you want. Do it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, media. uh, (laughs) So one year later, we decided to visit Salem ourselves during their busiest season. Not just to show you what you should be doing if and when you make the unholy pilgrimage to the witch city, but also to see how a town like Salem, whose lifeblood is tourism, whose infrastructure is pushed to the limit one month of the year, is dealing with our return to some semblance of normalcy and travel. So I walked around the city popping into shops, talking to witches, psychics, and the occasional animatronic devil. And all of it, thanks to the city's aggressive stance on COVID, was indeed spooky, but only for the right reasons. We're going to try to figure out how Salem, right now, can be something of a litmus test for the future of travel. Not just for cities who rely on tourism, but for us as travelers who want to be responsible visitors in this, let's call it a confusing time. But before we get too deep into that, we need to talk about witches. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. <laughs> Broomsticks are right. They're fine. It's the Wizard of Oz that makes me a little crazy. Just think, if, uh, if Technicolor had come out four years later, we wouldn't have a lot of the misconceptions we have today. With an actual witch. Stick around. If you grew up in Massachusetts, you probably went on a field trip to Salem. And you know that for a crash course in witch trial history, there's several options in town. The Salem Witch Dungeon Museum will show you historical recreations of the town's original dungeons, complete with wax figures in various states of torture. 
The extremely popular Salem Witch Museum, located in a towering 19th century church at the center of town, features an admittedly hokey Vincent Price-style audio narration showcasing both the history of the Salem Witch Trials and a timeline of witches in popular culture, using life-size dioramas with a bunch of wax figures. They really like wax figures here. I do think it's worth the $15 admission to both, but I'd also make sure to venture to the Old Town Hall to see a production of Cry Innocent, a critically acclaimed crowd-interactive play portraying the trial of Bridget Bishop, one of the first women in Salem to be accused of witchcraft. During the performance, the audience acts as the jury, offering up a guilty or innocent verdict at the end of the show, asking questions to the suspect and accusers during breaks, and even examining evidence. So one of my favorite things is to see a kid stand up for Bridget Bishop, for example, and really drop into as much as they can gather of that Puritan mindset and argue from that perspective. Because I think it helps us imagine, like, what are we screwing up on today, you know, that we could learn from the process of the witchcraft trials and how things went terribly awry and try not to make those same kinds of mistakes. That's Christina Wakehamp-Stevick, the Artistic Director of History Alive. She's the creative force behind Cry Innocent. One thing about seeing a witch trial take place with actors in real time, you realize how brutal and horrific this period in American history really was. And it kind of makes you reconsider all these plastic wands and cartoon ghosts and cheeky t-shirt sands you see around town. Almost like people think of it as one big Disney world, almost related to witchcraft and the witchcraft hysteria, and there's a lot more bleeding into other areas of the freaky and supernatural or scary that really doesn't have anything to do with the Salem witchcraft hysteria. So it can be, it can be hard sometimes to watch a, a very tragic period from our, from our history um, be commercialized and become kind of a joke, and it's hard to watch people be like, yeah, my wife's a witch, hang her, you know? And I'm like, oh, that, that really kind of really stings. All right, so this is a very complicated, nuanced historical event that we simply cannot cover fully in this podcast, but here's an attempt at a very truncated 60-second breakdown of the witch trials in Salem. Start the clock. Between February 1692 and May 1693, 200 people in Colonial, Massachusetts were accused of witchcraft. 30 were found guilty, 14 women and 5 men were executed by hanging, and one man was pressed to death in Salem. No one was burned. Background to this background, the Calvinists in the area fled England to create a new pure church, and they were extremely superstitious and believed in ghosts, specters, and that the devil himself was always trying to tempt them. The witch trial started when two young girls had violent fits, complete with speaking in tongues and bodily contortions, which a local doctor chalked up to witchcraft. Accusations started flying, hysteria spread, and soon enough people were accusing their neighbors of being witches for being lonely old women or infertile or just because they had a random disagreement. There was a spread of misinformation, an abandonment of science, and a lot of superstitious finger-pointing and misguiding beliefs, specifically around women, and hey, doesn't this all sound kind of familiar? But anyway, no one really knows what happened to the girls. Maybe they were lying, maybe they were being manipulated, but it was one of the last major witch hunts in the Western world, and the site where most people were hung now houses the Walgreens where I bought toothpaste during my trip. There might not have been witches in Salem in the 1600s, but there are definitely witches here now. You know, so now we have to buy five of this, like five calendula, five splant this, if you can get it. Are you taping me now? <laughs> Jeez. This is Terry Colgren, a self-described witch and owner of Artemisia Botanicals, an apothecary in Salem opened since the early 90s. 
We're talking in your stockroom slash office, surrounded by dry packages of herbs of various scents and magical properties. Anything that you could use plant matter for, you can use these. And uh, they've kept us healthy and they've kept us happy. And sometimes when we're not so happy, we do a little in a little, you know, bowl or we do it a little in a bottle and stir it up in the light of the moon. Sorry, you're not, you're like, seriously? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know if you were joking. <laughs> no, no, no. Spells. A spell is uh, another word for a prayer. Except that you have to do something. You can't just say, damn, I wish I would win the lottery. Oh, God, let me win the lottery. Jupiter is on Thursday. So if we were doing money spells, we would do that on a Thursday. Friday is love. Saturday is something else. And it's all, it's more of a, as they used to say, it's an art, science, and a religion. It's three. Three things in one. Have you um, got results from some of these spells that you wanted to? And I don't even know if that's the right way to look at it. That's what this is. The shop. Right now, Terry is gesturing around at the store. She does move her hands a lot when she talks. I mean, she's from the Bronx. And you can hear the charms on her bracelets jangling around her wrists. And when we think of witches, they automatically think they're green. My shop was still down on the wharf, and this woman comes in, very nice, very sweet, and she goes, hi, and I said, hi, how are you? I said, can we help you? And she leans down really close, and she goes, do you know if there are any witches around here? Now, there were four of four people in the store, and four of them were witches. And I said, yeah, there's some here. And she goes, she looks around, she goes, but you're not green. And she stopped herself. And she goes, oh my God, excuse me. I am sure if you ever asked her, she had never ever seen a green person in her whole life. You know, unless she's hanging around with Shrek. In addition to the shop, Terry has been focused on spreading education on what modern day witches actually do and what they don't do. The biggest questions we got at that point were, where's the bathrooms and what do babies taste like? And they, not in that order. Uh, what do they taste like? Chicken. <laughs> and she, like most of the modern witches in town, embraced the obvious connection between modern-day feminism and the historical persecution of witches. I always joke and I say, which means a woman in total control of herself. And I don't think control is actually the word I want to use, but, you know, it, it matches in there and it spells it right. But empowers herself and maybe empowers other people. And I think that is what we all strive for. So I think that's sort of the antithesis of what a woman is, what a mother is, what a witch is. I stopped by some other notable witch stores in town. House Witch, spelled like H-A-U-S, is the epitome of a modern witch shop with home decor, healing crystals, and an active Instagram presence. Omen is like the Walmart of witch shops with psychics and confession-style booths lining the windows and DIY seance kits plastic wrapped at the checkout counter. A lot of this might be classified under tourist traps, but when you're here as a tourist, this is probably what you want to check out. The owner of the Magic Parlor, featuring a treasure trove of horror collectibles varying from blood capsules to real human bones, 
has a wall of movie quality masks courtesy of its very qualified owner. My name is Rob Fitz. I'm a makeup artist. I've been doing makeup for movies for over 25 years. Earlier this year, I worked on two very cool shows. I worked on American Horror Story season 10, and I worked on uh, the new season of Dexter. My makeup background kind of adds to the whole professional makeup aspect and, and the monster masks and all that stuff. So yeah, we have a good time. You can also wander down to the Salem Common, the big parking town. It's like a mini fair filled with live music and tents hawking gaudy t-shirts saying, I got stoned in Salem, or vintage troll dolls wearing teeny NFL jerseys, and of course, some gravestones. My name is Brenda Sullivan. The name of my business is The Gravestone Girls. What I'm here on the Common doing every weekend in October is selling gravestone castings. The tents out here in Salem Common are actually a byproduct of COVID, moved from the much less spacious downtown area. You know, where this guy hangs out. And the name is Cornucopius. This year is the first time that we're down here on the Common. It used to be up on Essex Street. Uh, so you and 500,000 of your closest friends every day. It was just, it was just so crowded up on Essex Street. So it did not allow for a lot of people, as many people as that come, to actually comfortably move around. So this is way better. So everyone we talked to thus far had glowing reviews for how Salem handles the influx of spooky seekers that descend upon the town every autumn, and particularly how they're handling the unprecedented and basically impossible balancing act of keeping people coming in while keeping locals safe. But there are plenty of real people living in this town who aren't involved with tourism. And for a lot of those people, October is not ideal. Um just annoys me. <laughs> I live in town and yeah, you wake up on October 1st and you look outside your window and there's just a ton of random people. We all hate it until like actual Halloween night and we're like, all right, cool, this is great. And then, you know, the next day is like the best holiday in Salem, November 1st. Because <laughs> nothing's happening and everybody, all the locals go out and get their breakfast with no lines. And yeah, it's, it's great. What do you do on November 1st? What do I do? I sleep. <laughs> Folks, if you want to take the pulse of any given town, head to the local record shop. I'm Alex, this is Residency Records, and we do punk rock and metal and local and pretty much everything, really. What was it like last year? So, to get real with it, I feel like it was just the jerks that came out. It was like, why are you traveling in the middle of a pandemic to my city, like, like stay home. Do you have any advice for people coming to Salem? Yeah. Wear a mask and don't be a jerk. <laughs> Tourists being at odd with locals is a tale as old as travel. It's Salem's reaction that's so notable. But what factored into the decision to end last year's Halloween season by telling people to stay away? And this year, what is the local government doing to keep the town safe? You know, aside from some spooky-themed PSA posters showcasing why Jason's hockey mask isn't approved by the CDC. Too many holes. Well, we're going straight to the source here the mayor of Salem, Kim Driscoll, right after this break. Stick around. I'm Kim Driscoll. I'm the mayor, lucky to be the mayor in Salem, Massachusetts, and I've been in this job for the last 15 years. Yeah, I mean, I never want to relive a year like that again, for sure. She's talking about 2020, obviously. Salem was not a ghost town on Halloween, despite sort of really pleased with folks saying, this isn't the year. 
um, your, your, your experience is going to be really compromised because of all the restrictions that are in place. Um, we did have people here, but I think they came knowing fully that this wasn't necessarily uh, what we wanted to have happen at that time period. It's just not safe for, for our frontline workers. It's not safe for visitors. Really hard, but just the right call. Right now, Salem is fully open, and they've taken aggressive measures to stay open. And frankly, we're hearing from people who are coming here, like, I'm choosing to come to Massachusetts because the state has such a high vaccine vaccine rate, and, and people feel safe coming. In any indoor environment, you do have to have a mask to enter, a store, anything like that, any public place. At indoor events with over 100 people, you have to show a negative test from the past couple days, even with vaccination. If you've tried to get a test recently, you know it can be pretty hard to find one. Salem actually makes it pretty easy. So you do have to have a negative COVID test within 72 hours of the event that you're attending in order to gain entry into that event. We have something called stop the spread testing. Those are PCR tests and they come back usually within 24 hours. And then we also supplemented that with rapid tests. So we have a site right downtown. It's open Wednesday through Saturday, every single weekend where you can get a 15 minute rapid test. We don't wanna to contribute to any sort of super spreader event and wanna try and mitigate our risks as best we can from that. Over and over again, I got two big pieces of advice from people in Salem about visiting. The first is about planning ahead buying tickets in advance, booking reservations, being deliberate in where you want to be. And while I did plan ahead for the most part, this is kind of an issue for me because my favorite part of travel, what I miss the most is the spontaneity, not having an itinerary, talking to strangers and doing things on a whim. And actually Salem with its many safeguards made that possible this year. I spent the back half of my day without set plans, wandering around and doing random stuff. Like stopping into Red Sandwiches, where I found a grilled cheese club that was so good, it kind of made me mad. Or taking the advice of Jen and Liana from Dayani Yoga and going to Far From the Tree Cidery on my way home. They make an electric green Ghostbusters-themed hard cider with kiwi and chili peppers. It was one of the weirdest things I've ever drank, and I mean that in a good way. Or the Witchboard Museum, aka the Ouija Board Museum. It was honestly one of the most interesting places I went to, and I found it by accident in the back of the souvenir shop Salem Remembers. They have boards from all over the world, some from the early 1800s, and others that are genuinely terrifying. Everything here in the museum is from my collection, except one board. The previous owner of that board did have a bad experience with it. So much so, they spent 15 to $20 just to mail it away. They did not put a return address on the package. I've believed every story I've heard. Now, people have claimed that, you know, uh, they'd get rid of a board, they'd lit it on fire, and that uh, the next day the board was back in their house. Is, uh, you know, because a lot of people are too afraid to come into this room. The other piece of advice I gathered, aside from getting the hell away from that Ouija board, is practicing patience. Nothing is going to be perfect right now. There's probably going to be some major hassles if you travel to places still taking the pandemic seriously. And at this point, that's something we just need to deal with because no one can see what the future holds. Uh, except for Zenovia, the tarot card reader at the Magic Parlor. This is me, Zenovia. Nice to meet you. Hi, Zenovia. Hello. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm not going to ask you about what's going on with you and what's up okay. and why you're here. I'm going to first give, put the cards out and then, then we'll talk. Okay, so what I'm going to do is put the cards down. It'll be a snapshot of what's going on. It's like a really, really good cards in this reading right now, this layer. There's a lot of personal growth going on in it. This is creativity, growth, 
and uh, your purpose, your soul's purpose. I think that we are just starting this new season of the show. This is our first episode in Salem, and we have 20 more. So I just want to know, you know. In Salem or anywhere? No, all over the Good. place. Good, okay. So, uh -huh. you know, I guess the question is, you know, do you think um, this season is going to be fruitful? Do you think we'll learn things? Do you think it'll be well-received? Well. Do you think my bosses will like it? But as far as your project with the, the company, will they be happy and all that stuff? Let me go look here and see what the cards come up with. Do they know what you're up to? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They do, or are you gonna surprise them? What are you doing? Uh, I don't, they don't know the specifics right now, but right. <laughs> they know I'm here. But I wanna say, try to come outside of whatever box you think you're supposed to be in. So watch the fine line between doing it for someone else to approve of and doing it for like, okay, let's merge the two. Okay. Let, let's make, let's, let's, let's do it for the highest good of all, rather than, oh, I have to please this entity. Do you guys uh, validate parking? I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, for the record, Nathan let me park at the Satanic Temple. What a nice guy. Anyway, right before I left town, I had one last moment of Salem serendipity. I met Mark and Sandy. They're locals and really good musicians who give Essex Street a fitting soundtrack. This is old Greek music. Most of the music that we play is Rebetica from the early 20th century. And, um, just gets it into people's heads, lets them hear something that they're missing. I mean, Salem certainly has a lot of really cool history. Uh, yep. The architecture, the, the people, the, you know, the history is really cool. And it does have a lot of great, uh, you know, cafes and, you know, all that good stuff. So it's cool to be where people are gathered and, yeah, it kind of resonates with, with something that's in, in people. And we love doing that. <laughs> There's no one-size-fits-all solution to this big question of how we can get back to quote-unquote normal travel. But I think we can look at Salem, what they're doing and not doing, and try to apply it to the places we go. Because I got a lot out of this city, and I felt good about it the entire time. I think that they've already handled tourism pretty well in the city, because they get a lot of this, even before September. People are coming. People are coming all, all months, really. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, so that song you've been hearing throughout the show is from them, and it's the last thing I recorded here. So naturally, with that, I'll let them take us out. Kind of falling off, but you know. No, no, actually, actually, hold on. We're gonna end with one more clip of Terry, and then we'll do the song. I love Harry Potter. Do you? I love him. Is it how witches are? Who the hell knows? <laughs> Can you say that there isn't a Hogwarts? I mean, I've never heard of it. Well, I'd send my kids. Yeah, I feel like you'd be included in that correspondence, right? Well, I would hope to. I mean, you know, I had a little crush on, um, what's his name, the big guy. but Hagrid? Hagrid, yeah. Yeah, he's a stud. Yeah. Okay. All right, that's it for us. Big thanks to Dayani Yoga. They do virtual classes. There's a link in our description. Check them out. They are amazing. Thanks to the Satanic Temple, to Mayor Kim Driscoll, to the Cry Innocence performers. Thanks to Zenovia and everyone at the Magic Parlor. And also Mark and Sandy. You can hear their music online. There is a link in our description. To Terry, my favorite witch, and everyone else who is nice enough to talk to us during our trip. 
This episode was produced by myself and Mia Fask, edited by the excellent Dean White and Abby Austria. Big thanks to Brett Kushner, Emily Feld, Megan Kirsch, and Jim D'Amico. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye.